0: Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Fiacco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Hi, everybody. I am joined today by my colleagues, Ron Knox, who's a senior researcher with our independent business initiative, as well as John Farrell, who directs our energy democracy work and is one of ILSR's co-directors. Our other colleague, Brenda Platt, was going to join us, but she is unfortunately sick. So I am going to be sharing some highlights from our composting team as well as we go through things here. So welcome to the show, Ron and John.
1: Hey, Jess. Good to be here. Thanks. You know if you welcome us together
2: it's ron john and then we're just a surf shop instead of policy folks. <laughs> just a
1: just a t- a tampa area surf shop nothing more we're all wearing which, hawaiian is, a, which shirts is a good, right a, good st- a good strong independent business by the way a tampa area surf shop you know
0: this is also our very last building local power episode of 2021 so we're, that's why we're celebrating it with the, the hawaiian shirts right <laughs>
2: amazing how comfortable this Hawaiian shirt is in my cold basement in Minnesota.
0: Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about some highlights from our work this year. And I wanted to start by looking at some of the work that we did at the federal level, which may not be the first thing you think of when you hear the name, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is us working at the federal level, but we were advocating for policies that center local and distributed solutions. So maybe starting with John, you want to talk about What your program did at the federal level this year, you know, how, how did you work to shape federal policy for local priorities?
2: Yeah. Thanks, Jess. I often talk about the Institute for Local Self-Reliance as a national local organization that we have this, I've always had this national focus, but are really intent on prioritizing the opportunities for local communities to have more decision-making power. And as it turns out, there are opportunities for the federal government to actually help in that work from time to time. And not just (laughs) by getting out of the way, but by doing things. So our big project from our energy democracy initiative was called 30 million solar homes. It actually launched back in 2020. And in a way, in a response to every all the shit that was hitting the fan in 2020 around racial inequality, with the pandemic, the economic insecurity of the pandemic, and of course, the ongoing threat from the climate crisis. And the idea was, can we articulate something that's meaningful out of our energy program that addresses all of these things? And the idea was, let's create a program, uh, a, a broad federal program to prioritize a rooftop and community-scale solar that could help people by reducing their energy bills directly, could employ millions of Americans In installing rooftop solar, and that we could specifically target towards folks who have not often seen the benefits from the transition to the clean energy economy or who have suffered particularly harshly under the fossil fuel economy. We worked with over 300 organizations that joined in a coalition that we were in a partnership helping to lead. And we did some advocacy and some education with folks at the federal level about why their focus on climate and clean energy should not just be signing over the rewards of the clean energy economy to a bunch of utility companies, and that it should really also focus on deploying energy at a scale where everybody can benefit on rooftops of homes, on the roofs of churches, uh, small businesses, et cetera. And we've really seen a remarkable amount of the policy program and recommendations that came out of that 30 million solar homes effort into a number of federal policy Uh, proposals. Most directly in the Build Back Better legislation, there's a whole slew of things. I could spend 10 minutes, frankly, just reading through all the different items, but I'll just give a few of the highlights, not just in terms of what the policies were that were included, but how they actually reflect that kind of triple goal of addressing racial inequality, the climate crisis, and, and the economic insecurity from COVID. One of them is just the federal tax credits for solar. We've had them for over a decade. Just gives you a discount on your solar installation and you get it back at tax time but the problem is of course that if you don't have a lot of tax liability you can't get a tax credit so you know the bottom 50 percent of americans basically couldn't take advantage of this tax credit and Nonprofits or schools community institutions churches other houses of worship couldn't take advantage of this tax credit because they don't pay taxes so one of the biggest successes in the build back better legislation is incorporating rules that would change this to be a refundable tax credit number one, which is very important in terms of allowing all of these folks who couldn't previously participate. But the second one is doing what's called direct pay, which means that you could actually get the payment without having to wait until April tax time. Like if I installed a solar array in July, I could get the payment from the federal government in the next couple of months instead of waiting all the way until next year, which is also really important, especially if paying for a Several thousand dollars solar array isn't something you can just do easily out of pocket. So, you know, maybe you can get a short-term loan to float you till that payment comes in, for example. So that's a big deal. Another thing that is included in the bill is a huge increase in money for the Rural Energy for America program, which gives grants to small independent farmers, rural small businesses, rural individuals to do and deploy clean energy. Uh, There's so much clean energy resource in rural areas from the sun, from the wind. Uh, It's a great opportunity to continue to tap into that. And then there are a number of special programs that specifically target, like we mentioned, people who haven't had access before. So programs in the housing and urban development that would support affordable housing units, being able to do solar and and renewable energy. Bonus credits as part of the solar tax credits for projects that are located in low-income communities or that specifically serve low-income individuals. And also some big loan guarantees and, and grants for tribal communities who again, often have enormous renewable energy resources on tribal lands, but don't have the capital needed to make those investments. So it's really exciting to see all of these different components. Broadly across the Biden administration, they have what's called their Justice 40 initiative as well, which reflects this idea that at least 40% of the benefits of federal clean energy investment should go to communities that have been historically marginalized. So I'm just very excited because there's something in there for everybody. There's extensions of tax credits, there's loan guarantees, there's money to support distributed solar rooftop and community solar. And there's a real focus in making sure that even folks who haven't been able to get access before will be able to.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, John. I would love to hear some highlights from independent businesses work over the last year. I know you've got a few things that happened at the federal level.
1: Yeah, we have. Thanks, Jess. And John, it's really great to hear about the work you guys are doing. I was lucky enough to hear about all of that work uh, very recently. And I think it's just fascinating. And I think it's really, really excellent and a real change maker. So for the independent business program, I mean, I think the focus on the federal level isn't really a new one for our program but it certainly was a major focus over the past year. We've known and we have been saying for a long time that the enforcement of the laws that regulate monopolies and and that regulate corporate concentration at the federal level have been broken in this country for a long time. You know, they've been broken by these very specific policy choices that regulators and lawmakers have made and that the judges and courts have upheld over the past 40 years or so. And these are policies that have allowed big, powerful companies to get even bigger. They've allowed many industries to consolidate. And that's all happened at the expense of independent businesses and of workers and of shoppers, consumers. So over the past year, and honestly, over the past two or three years, lawmakers have really started to listen and have really started to understand that this consolidation that's gone on over the past several decades, half century, let's say, has hurt the economy. And that in order to undo some of the bad policies and the bad legal precedents that that have created this issue, the laws themselves ultimately need to change. And they need to change in particular to address the rising power of the big tech monopolies like Amazon and Google and Facebook that have ultimately come to control so much of the modern economy. So with that momentum underway, our work has really focused on trying to make some of those changes a reality. And you know, I'll talk a little bit later about those bills specifically, some of the proposed laws that we're seeing that we're really excited about. But I, w- I want to add that the recognition of the harms of monopoly power aren't just happening at the federal level, although a lot of our work is focused there, right? But over the last year, we've seen a crucial new anti-monopoly law introduced in the New York State House, and that is passed uh, out of the Senate there. We advocated for that bill. We testified on its behalf, and now we're part of a coalition called New Yorkers for a Fair Economy, that includes like labor groups and small business groups and others, who are all pushing for this bill's ultimate passage into law. So lots of work on the federal front, but it certainly doesn't end there. I also want to talk a little bit, just to, you know, to stick to like the federal picture because it is so important to some of the work that we're doing, trying to push back against monopoly power and corporate concentration. Some things we're really excited about are really strong leadership that is now in place at both of our antitrust agencies, right? We have Lena Kahn, who is now the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, and Jonathan Cantor, who is the head of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice. They're both really deep critics of outsized corporate power. They're champions of competition, and they're really like they're champions of the kind of competition that would allow independent businesses to compete and to thrive in the economy, and that would build worker power and so on. Lena Khan was appointed in the spring. Jonathan Cantor took office just this fall, but we're already seeing a lot of progress you know, within those agencies and really refocusing and changing the mission of those agencies so that they work better for the economy and for people. Look at the FTC. I can talk about a strong. I, th- I think what is a strong new lawsuit uh, against Facebook, one that was filed by the previous administration, refiled by Lena Khan in this administration. I think it's much stronger now and really and really calls out the abuses uh, of Facebook in acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp. We're seeing blocked mergers. We're seeing like all of these things that you expect to see from an aggressive antitrust enforcer but the work of the agencies has gone really beyond that which is really exciting for us at the ftc the agency revised its like entire mission statement basically and its long term plan that really refocused the ftc's competition protection work from this like very narrow view of prices consumer prices and output to a much broader welfare standard where consumer concerns live alongside those of small companies, of workers, of suppliers in the broader economy. We've seen big and really significant investigations happen at the agencies. There was just a joint workshop on the intersection between labor, like workers' rights, and antitrust issues. There's a really sweeping investigation to look at problems in supply chains and whether the power of big retailers has worked to increase prices, reduce supply and make those supply chain issues worse. The FTC has changed some rules around mergers, really hoping that those changes will stem an unprecedented wave of corporate tie-ups. So some real like you know significant progress there. I think it's something that as like small business owners, as workers and as shoppers in the economy, we can all be excited about and it's certainly things that we are excited about. Real quickly I want to point out that <laughs> these issues are the issues that we on the independent business team here at ILSR have worked on hard over the last year. We advocated for Lena Kahn and for Jonathan Cantor to be appointed and to be confirmed by the Senate. That's obviously happened. We wrote really significant articles about some of the harms that happen when you allow a lot of corporate mergers to take place. We've written about the need for an alliance between small businesses and the labor movement. And of course, we've released our comprehensive Amazon Tollbooth report that we hope will enlighten policymakers to how Amazon exploits small businesses in order to grow its power in the economy. So we're feeling good. It's been an important year. There's more to do, but, but it's been a good 12 months.
0: Yeah, it's, it's uh, so exciting to be, be such a significant part of what's an actual sea change across policy.
2: Yeah, I would just love to ask, speaking of a sea change, I feel like one of the most significant accomplishments in ILSR's work around antitrust and monopoly has been this shift in the perception of whose side small business is on or kind of where small business lines up. I feel like five or 10 years ago, and the only time I heard about small businesses in the context of federal policy was, you know, get rid of red tape make it easier for businesses to act you know at the low you know in the state level get rid of taxes and regulations and here instead i feel like over the last year and and what's amazing is it's not just it's not just a slogan right there are many many small businesses part of the work signing up to testify signing up to talk about it can you explain a little bit like why Why the shift? What was happening before with small businesses and why are they speaking up so strongly in favor of the anti-monopoly and antitrust action that that ILSR has been talking about now?
1: So I'm gonna try to be nice about this. (laughs) Let me say that for a long, long time, many, many years in this country, there were these, there was this kind of falsehood that was pushed as a narrative around the economy. Where small businesses became, rather than this thing that we really needed to preserve in order to have a vibrant economy, vibrant local communities, local power, local control, all these kinds of crucial things, they became this kind of vehicle for, unfortunately, a lot of conservative talking points and, 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 and the conservative economic movement in general in this country over the last 50 years. What was actually behind that? was this real push for increased bigness in the economy. So all of the deregulation efforts of the late 70s and 80s, on and on through all of the various presidential administrations since then has really created this environment where bigness is not only welcome in the economy, but was thought of as very much a good thing. The problem when that happened was when you're promoting bigness in the economy, you're getting away from small-scale. You're getting away from small-scale businesses and small-scale economies and the independent businesses that really make up Main Street and that were the lifeblood of a lot of communities. And I think they're just we've just hit this moment. Maybe it started with, uh, with the Great Recession a decade ago, and it's certainly become hyper-focused now in the pandemic economy. But I think small business owners hit this moment where you said, you know what? You've been talking a lot about us. But you're actually, the policies that you're actually pushing and that you're actually implementing, they're not about us. They're favoring the big guys and they're favoring bigness and they're favoring concentration. You're allowing these mergers to happen that concentrate our supply chains, create these bottlenecks. You're allowing these predatory middlemen operations to, to, to run rampant over us, over our businesses. And I think we've just hit this tipping point where small business owners said, you're, this isn't true. And so now we need new answers. So now, we need, so now we need the truth. And we need a movement that's really going to focus on us. Not us as a, as a political talking point, as a, a chip to push around a poker table, you know what I mean? But us as independent actors in this economy with every right to compete and to succeed as anyone else, no matter what the size. I just think we've hit this moment, you know, and it's been really refreshing to see.
0: Thank you, Ron. And I'm a poor substitute for Brenda, but I will share, um, you know, the composting team had some exciting progress this year at the federal level as well. So I do wanna share a couple of their updates. ILSR is a founding member of the U.S. Composting Infrastructure Coalition. And this coalition really played a a pivotal role in the development of the Federal Compost Act. That's C-O-M-P-O-S-T Act (laughs) as an acronym, of course. Um, And that act was introduced this year And it's really important because currently there's no federal policy that exists that really provides any resources for a national composting movement. There's there's just not any existing federal policy on that. So this act would provide quite a bit of funding through 2031. That's about $200 million for composting projects. Uh, And we helped advocate to include small-scale projects like on farms or in communities or even at the household level. To qualify for to receive that funding, um, so that was certainly a big win, and we're also just excited to see recognition that composting is important in other pieces of legislation, the Build Back Better Bill, and the Infrastructure Act, which happens to have almost eighty million dollars in funding that's around recycling and composting included in it. Both acknowledged the importance of composting. Our Dedicated listeners may have heard a recent episode where we talked about our advocacy around um, recycling at the federal level. Um, So definitely check that out if you're curious to learn more about that side of things. That's with the uh, Recycling is Infrastructure 2 campaign. So uh, very exciting inclusions of recycling and composting in many uh, pieces of federal policy this year. So with that, I did want to give both of you the opportunity to maybe talk about different wins or progress that you saw, whether it's also, at the federal level or local level, that you wanted to highlight from your programs this year?
1: So, yeah, I mean, look, I think we've seen some really significant wins, so to speak, over the last year. And I'll start at the federal level, then I'll talk a little bit about some local initiatives that, that we've had some success with. But I mean, I think the main thing are the big tech focused antitrust bills that were introduced first in the House. We had six of those bills introduced in the House after some really significant work on our part, but on the on behalf of the lawmakers, their staffs, advocacy groups, and so on. Those bills all passed out of the House Judiciary Committee, and uh, they are now ready for a vote by the full uh, House of Representatives. So that's extremely exciting. Two of those bills, two of kind of the most crucial bills, now have companion bills in the Senate. One of those is a bill that would restrict big tech companies from buying out smaller rivals or making other acquisitions that reduced competition. And then the other bill would prevent Amazon, Google, and other big tech companies from self-preferencing. And that just means like, you know, for example, like Amazon forcing third-party sellers to use Amazon's own shipping and warehousing service in order to earn the prime badge and to be visible to shoppers on the Amazon site. So those are really exciting bills. Um, all of those bills are bipartisan. They're all they all have a lot of you know public support, not just on the hill, but 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 out in the world as well. ILSR and other advocacy organizations have been working hard to make sure that lawmakers and others on the hill really understand the harms of of the big tech companies, and to really hear the voices of the small businesses that are struggling under the power um, of of the big tech giants. So really to help make that happen, this year we launched Small Business Rising. That's, uh, it's a coalition of associations that represent more than 150,000 small businesses around the country. We think that small business rising has been crucial to giving a lot of independent businesses a voice in the halls of power that they didn't have before and where their stories really need to be heard. Again, so so that the people who are crafting policy, who are making these extremely crucial economic decisions, understand the harms that are actually taking place out on Main Street. Not in a theoretical way, but in a real real tangible hands-on way because that's exactly how these harms you know, really transpire. So, so we think the bills are really evidence that that work is paying off. So we're excited about that. On the local level, you know, ILSR, the independent business team has been pushing back for a long time now against the rapid expansion uh, of dollar stores. These like kind of predatory dollar stores that pop up in communities around the country, often in small towns. Uh, And in urban areas, places that lack this kind of economic power to begin with, and they offer essentially worse service, worse products, they push out local independent businesses that were already there, that maybe offered, you know, healthier food, for example, more high quality products, and instead they come in and they're they're sponges for the wealth of a community and they take that wealth and move it back to corporate headquarters and they and they leave these communities far worse off this year we've seen communities across uh, really uh, you know across the country big towns uh, like big cities um you know smaller places implementing policies that either ban the expansion of dollar source outright or that reconsider their zoning to uh, to limit the expansion of those dollar stores, particularly in communities, black and brown communities, often in urban areas, poor rural communities, where these predatory dollar stores like to set up and their kind of extractive monopolistic business model can really take hold. This has been crucial work during the pandemic, as we've seen dollar stores rapidly rapidly expand the fastest growing brick and mortar business in America by a long shot a lot of our you know behind the scenes advocacy work with local elected officials local frontlines advocacy groups has been really crucial to getting some of those bans put in place so we're excited about that work too
0: thank you ron and i feel like um it's easy to kind of think like okay they're rapidly expanding there's lots of dollar stores like i get it but how extreme it is, is really difficult to see unless you live in those neighborhoods or those towns. I mean, I know I don't, you know, in the neighborhood that I live in right now, I don't see any dollar stores really, you know, like I'd have to drive a little ways and then maybe I'd see one, but in my hometown, a small town, like literally you'll see a dollar store across the street from the same dollar store. Like it's extreme (laughs) just how, how fast those they're expanding and taking advantage of those communities. So thank you for that, John. I don't know anything you want to add here.
2: I think when we think about like, the big wins for the energy democracy work, I really think about it in terms of changing the broad perception of what it is that we need to be addressing in the energy economy. There has been obviously driven by uh, environmentalists and by climate advocates, this idea of, that the most important thing we need to focus on in the energy sector is on reducing carbon emissions and that the means of doing that doesn't matter. And I think we've really turned a corner in terms of people staying, actually, the means do matter because in fact, within the means, we might be able to get to our goals faster if we are approaching this from a way that analyzes the power structures in the system. And so I think you see that in the 30 million solar homes. I mean, this is one articulation of many different folks who are out there saying, actually, if we want to get to our climate and clean energy goals, we need to be thinking about how do we let individuals invest their own money? into this, how do we do it in a way that says, let's create as many jobs as possible and allow people who've been locked out of the clean energy economy into the clean energy economy. I think like just one illustration of this is in some conversations about how we incentivize and pay for solar that are happening in California right now in the regulatory space. California has about 1.3 million homes and businesses that have solar installed on them. And, you know, folks made the decision to do that for a lot of different reasons, but many of them did it just because it made financial sense to them. And so they put their own money at risk to add clean energy to the grid system. And in fact, they have done so. We just did some sort of back of the envelope calculation, but somewhere around like 35 to $40 billion have been invested collectively by these California customers to put power generation onto the grid system which is actually equal to about the entire market cap of one of their biggest investor owned utilities, Pacific gas and electric, which most folks might've heard of in the news in the last couple of years, because of course of their negligence in causing some of the biggest wildfires in California history.
0: I feel like we need like a, like a buzzer or like a sad noise to play whenever you say their name. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I I just think that's, that is the kind of, when I think about the success that we're having, it is in that kind of transformation. And you can see that a little bit actually in an editorial that was written by, it was by the editorial board of the San Francisco Chronicle this week. So like I said, there's this debate going on about solar compensation and the editors of the Chronicle essentially said, before we get into the weeds about how much we pay solar customers, maybe we should be asking the question, why is PG&E still running our electricity grid? after this they've gone bankrupt twice in 20 years they've been shown to be negligent to have diverted money from basic maintenance to shareholder dividends which is part of what caused the wildfires was failing to for example trim trees away from the power lines and yet we still allow them to not only operate but to operate as a monopoly utility corporation as the sole owner of the electric grid with no competition with no option for others to be a part of that business and i think that that kind of questioning is becoming more widespread, which is really exciting. And we can talk about that a little bit more later too, when you talk about some of the trends broadly that we're seeing across the country.
0: (laughs) Now I'm going to put my composting hat back on, my Brenda hat, and uh, share another update from their team.
2: Is a composting hat also compostable?
0: (laughs) Sure. It's actually, it's like a newspaper hat, you know? So for years, uh, their team, ILSR, has been working with Maryland state officials and legislators to move forward on composting organic materials. And this year they had some really exciting uh, legislative wins. I'll link all the details in the show notes of this episode. If you want to see the specific laws, because I don't think anyone wants to hear me botch any of that language, <laughs> but there was four laws that were enacted, which will help advance composting in the state of Maryland. Um, and there's also a new bill that'll be introduced in January 2022. Um, which is shockingly just a couple of weeks away now, which is a bill that we, ILSR, drafted and we're going to be leading on. And that would create really major funding for waste diversion and on-farm composting in Maryland. So there's exciting stuff happening there. Uh, Before we cut to our ad break in quotation marks, are there any, any interesting trends or like surprising shifts in conversation that you all saw in your programs this year?
1: I mean, yeah, lots, 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 you know, I mean, I think for the, like I said, kind of at the top, like I think over the last few years, we've seen this, we've seen this kind of change in the way policymakers and even the way regular folks like kind of think about and recognize the problems with corporate bigness and with, we think of it as monopoly power. I'm not sure your, your average Joe on the street. That word crosses their mind. It's not really a part of the American lexicon at the moment, but I think they do look at these, you know, massive kind of unavoidable companies in their lives, and they have serious concerns about them. And now we're starting to talk about them, and again at the policy-making level, both at the federal level and on down, we're starting to see a lot of um, attention paid and 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 this issue being taken really seriously, and seeing a lot of action around it, and that's. Uh, massively different. Maybe not from exactly 12 months ago, but certainly from three, four, or five years ago. It's just a, a it's an actual sea change. And the longer look, ah, look Lena Khan, <laughs> Lena Khan, and Jonathan Cantor, and people like not only them themselves, but what they represent, the philosophy that they represent, and the place that they're coming to the agencies from which again is a place of great concern and criticism about the extent to which our economy is controlled by by corporate power and by monopoly power. That is so unbelievably different than not only from 12 months ago when we had different leadership of the agencies under a different administration, but from 10, 20, 30 years ago where we've seen This kind of rotating cast of corporate lawyers coming from big law firms, promoting corporate power, be at the helm of these agencies and and just not really take the threat of consolidation very seriously at all. So anyway, it's been a crazy year. It's been a crazy year and it's been very, very different from anything certainly I've seen. I I think
2: Ron's definitely got his finger on this and and it's actually something that it's been unexpected to see in the energy side of our economy, a 100 years ago, even more than a 100 years ago, we essentially made a deal with the devil to allow utility companies to be monopolies because we saw it as the most likely way to organize capital in a way that would bring electricity access to everybody. Uh, It already failed even back in the 1930s. We had to use the federal government to electrify the rural parts of America with the Rural Electrification Act. But for the rest of us who lived in urban areas, and I suppose I should say who live in urban areas because I wasn't around back then living in an urban area, but for the rest of us, it worked fairly well. The price of electricity actually even adjusted for inflation actually went down for almost the first 50 years of the industry. So that monopolization of the industry was successful from the standpoint of providing efficiency and cost reductions for folks. But that sort of ran out 50 years ago, and it's almost taken 50 years for people to really appreciate and to see some transformative policy initiatives take root. But for example, the Center for Biological Diversity is doing an actual antitrust filing against SRP, a big utility in Arizona, about their mistreatment of solar customers. So they're actually using this language of antitrust and anti-monopoly that has been foreign to the utility business, despite having actual formal monopolies. It's all of a sudden bubbling up. There's a petition in front of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to disallow these utilities to, for example, charge their captive customers for their lobbying dollars and their participation in trade associations, which almost universally lobby against things that most customers want, like clean energy and rooftop solar. And and it looks like the federal regulators are taking that seriously. You know, a transformation for me actually this year I was in reading an article that was written by Ari Pesco. Uh, he's at Harvard Law. And he wrote this piece called, Is the Utility Transmission Syndicate Forever? And for people who are not familiar with the term syndicate, it means the same thing as a cartel or a bunch of monopolists, basically. And the idea essentially is that utilities have gamed all of the efforts that the federal government have made over the past 20 years to make transmission line development more competitive. So you know these are the big power lines that you see along freeways when you drive uh, from city to city across the United States. And there's a lot riding on it in the sense that many people think that our success at fighting climate change, our success at bringing clean energy onto the grid relies on transmission development, which has put them directly at odds, frankly, with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which has always talked about, no, we need to do more investments in local things like rooftop solar, like energy storage, et cetera. And what's funny is to realize in reading that piece, we have a common enemy, Those of us who care about clean energy deployment, the monopolists are the problem, whether it's wanting to put solar on the rooftop of the ACE hardware in my neighborhood, or whether you want a transmission line built from windy South Dakota to Minneapolis to Chicago, either one of those things. It's not about this or either or, big or small. It's monopolists or not monopolists. And the monopolists, frankly, have been winning that fight for a long time because we haven't even been willing to recognize that they're the problem. And so I'm, I'm seeing that change. Uh, you're seeing that in, in a legislation that passed in Maine, unfortunately it was vetoed by their governor that would have done a public takeover of the distribution and transmission utilities there and would have turned them into a consumer owned but open access network um, virtually unheard of. an electricity business, a, mer- a proposed merger of an electric utility in New Mexico was unanimously rejected by the state's regulatory commission. I mean, there's basically been unfettered mergers of utility companies since they revoked the law that had prevented it in 2005, a law that, by the way, dates back to the 1930s when many of our other antitrust legislation originated. So we're we're seeing some really encouraging signs that things are being taken seriously around the idea of monopoly and market power, especially at this moment. We have so many awesome ways that we can generate energy and supply services to our electricity system in a way that's cleaner, that can employ people who've been left behind, that can lower their energy bills, uh, you name it.
0: Thank you to both of you. I just wanted to switch gears very briefly. Normally, this is when listeners would hear me cut to an ad break where I ask them to you know, support the show by making a donation. But instead of breaking up the conversation, I wanted to make this a little bit more personal and ask you both to talk about the direct impact that donations have on your work. So how how do donations make your, your work possible?
2: I, I have something just teed up from something that Jess actually passed along to me earlier today, which was uh, we've done a survey of our local individuals podcast listeners, and we got this back from someone, uh, quote, as a city employee, I rely on this podcast more than any other resource for staying apprised of what other cities are doing to encourage local renewable deployment. So your money, your donation to ILSR helps fund the production of that podcast at the time it takes to go out and find those great stories of what cities are doing to lead on clean energy development, uh, to do our background research, to identify the right person to interview, to record and produce that podcast so that folks across the country can learn from each other about what's going on. Because you know, the truth is not only is this are these challenging problems we're trying to solve around our economy around racial justice around the climate crisis but a lot of cities even if they come up with some good ideas that maybe aren't comfortable being the first ones doing it and so they look to these kinds of stories that we produce in order to identify like what is it that we can do and who can we learn from so we're not reinventing the wheel every time we do this and as you can see from that we are reaching people the, the folks that we want to reach the folks that are helping to lead on this staff folks you know, sustainability staff, staff for city council members across the country are, are listening to our podcast and relying on that as a way that they can get that information they need. So that's one way that your donation can help us do the work here at ILSR.
0: Thanks, Ron.
1: I'm going to try to like run a thread through one thing to another thing here. So I mentioned earlier that we started this organization. We helped to, to you know, found this organization called Small Business Rising. And of course, we did it in partnership with lots of great business associations and lots of amazing, hardworking members. But you know, we start this organization, and we're and we're doing this, you know, advocacy work on the Hill, on on on, um, you know, in Washington, in the Capitol, trying to get some of these important big tech anti-monopoly laws passed. So there's a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee about these, about these bills and representative David Cicilline from Rhode Island. He's speaking during this marathon session of the Judiciary Committee. It had gone on for 36 hours, essentially without stop. And he's giving his last and best pitch to get these things passed. And he pulls out a list of facts and a list of information prepared by the folks at ILSR and Small Business Rising, talking about the ways that big tech monopoly power hurts small business and impacts small businesses. And this is correlation, not causation, but it was his best swing. He was swinging for the fences with with this. Because when you start talking about small business you're talking about the heart of the economy and everybody knows that. And eventually these bills get passed out of committee. And now they're ready for a full vote by the House of Representatives. Why did that happen? That happened because we had the money, because donors are generous enough to us to allow us to hire extraordinarily talented people. I'm going to name names. Allowed us to hire a small business organizer named Mary Timmel, who's amazing, and a policy advocate named Katie Milani, who's amazing. And and they're the ones that put this together, that helped helped to organize these small businesses, to do this advocacy work, to get these bills moving, to try to help the hundreds of thousands and millions of small businesses in America get out from under the thumb of big tech monopoly power. It couldn't happen without donors. It couldn't happen without you. This is literally the crucial stuff. So anyway, thank you. And let us continue the fight. We want to keep, we want to keep fighting.
0: Yeah, we are, you know, we've accomplished a lot. We couldn't do it without you. And we are proud to be in community with our listeners and our donors to make change happen. So if you're able please consider heading over to ilsr.org slash donate to make a contribution. And even if you can't donate, you can still support us in other ways, like sharing this podcast with a friend or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, sharing this on social media, talking about Ilsr's work. It's all great. So as always, thank you for your support. John, I'm curious about your perspective since you've been at Ilsr a little bit longer than Ron and I. If you were to compare this last year to five years ago or 10 years ago, how have you seen our impact as an organization change?
2: I think the key element here is that we have always been known for our entire existence among the network of community level and local advocates as this valuable resource for how you can do things more effectively, but where we've really upped our game. And I think the moment that we've been able to seize is this realization that the rules at the top of the system, the federal rules, the state level rules are often rigged against the small guy. That's really what it comes down to. And when Ron is talking about the anti-monopoly fight, and when I'm talking about that as well, we're talking about this realization that we have to fight both at the same time. It's about building local power and it's about fighting corporate power. And, And I think we've really managed to successfully articulate to people why we have to care about that broadly. It's why we're seeing Congress debate these bills about antitrust and breaking up tech companies, it's why we're seeing the rise of anti-monopoly conversations in energy and in waste and in broadband. We've really managed to, I think, start to have an influence and help people understand that it's not just about what we can do locally, but what we also need to do collectively at a higher level to make sure that the playing field is more level for local economies to succeed.
1: I want to add on to that. I think that's just extremely important. I want to. I'm going to paraphrase this tweet. It's like literally a tweet. It's a tweet that I read. So this is not my original idea, but I thought it was so important. And it, you know, it basically said, if you begin from a place of not wanting to destroy economic power, but wanting to disperse economic power equally throughout the economy to everybody, you're setting yourself up for much more success on a policy level. And I think, and that to me is like the core of what ILSR does. And that, because that is our philosophy. That's the reason that's led to all of this, you know, success that we've had over the last year. And I think the success that we're going to have in the future. So that's, that's that. There you go.
0: Thank you both. Um, I have one final question, which is just looking ahead to 2022. It's almost here. Uh, What are you excited about? whether it's a project or, you know, what you see coming down the pipeline in terms of policy or anything.
2: I'll say that I'm just really excited about, in my own specific work within energy, the continued rise of this conversation and the confrontation of monopoly power. I am so excited that we are seeing some recognition of that, a growing coalition of folks that are interested in working on it from that perspective. In some ways, I feel like I'm following in the footsteps of the excellent work from our independent business team at bringing that attention to the broader economy and to bring it directly into the electricity sector.
1: Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. I and mean, look, we're all, we're all in one boat. We're all rowing in the same direction. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see the continuation of all the things that i've had a chance to talk about on this show you know i feel like the anti-monopoly movement both on a kind of federal policy level and on an everyday level is a snowball rolling down a hill and i just want this thing to keep rolling until it gains the kind of steam and size and power that it needs to really make change in the economy that's going to benefit everybody's lives so one year down but lots more to go. I want to see these bills become law. I want to see the agencies continue their good work. And, and, and I want to see these things take effect.
0: Thank you so much to both of you. That's, uh, that's it for today.
2: Thank you for coordinating us and making sure this happens. Really appreciate it.
1: Yes. Thank you, Jess, for all the good work you do. Not only on this, but on everything.
0: To this episode of the building local power podcast from the institute for local self-reliance you can find links to everything discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode that's ilsr.org while you're there you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media we hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by me, Jeff Selfiaco, and edited by Drew Burschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self Reliance, I'm Jeff Selfiaco, and I hope to join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.